0: You know, it's always funny to me how the communion meditation and the sermon seem to fit perfectly together. That's the case again this morning. David and I didn't sit down this week and talk about it and plan, but uh, it worked out. Uh, And the reason is really pretty simple it's because David loves the Lord, and I love the Lord, and we're both here to do his work. And so. Uh, that always just seems to work together. So, um, thank you for your communion meditation, David. And uh, as he pointed out, today is Palm Sunday, and you may have come here expecting me to, to be talking about palm branches and to say Hosanna. Well, uh, normally that would probably be the case, but since we are going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark, you know that we've already done that. We did that several weeks ago. We talked about the triumphal entry, but I want to do just a little bit of a refresher before we get into our chapter for today. Triumphal entry was not an uncommon thing. In fact, it was a very common thing in the first century Roman world. It was a common thing dating back hundreds of years before that. Whenever a people group was conquered by another people group, the victorious tribe or nation or people group would march through the center of town, a procession led by an army... Or a procession of an army led by their king or battlefield commander, and it sent a very potent, very specific message. There is a new authority in town. Your old way of doing things is gone. This is the new way of doing things. It was so common to have that happen. And so this military commander would come into town riding on a powerful stallion in front of his army. And this message of authority is what was being conveyed. Jesus makes a triumphal entry too. But he doesn't lead an army of warriors. Instead, he leads a band of fishermen, tax collectors, and commoners. They aren't wielding swords, they're waving palm branches, they aren't wearing armor, they're laying down their coats. You see, while Jesus is saying there's a new authority, Jesus is saying there's a new ruler, He's not talking to the Romans. He is talking to the reign and rule of sin and death in this world. There are a lot of differences between the triumphal entry of Jesus and the triumphal entries of history. He doesn't ride a beautiful horse. He rides an adolescent donkey. He isn't surrounded by an army. He's surrounded by disciples. And on and on it goes. Difference after difference. But perhaps the most profound difference is this. Usually, when someone makes a triumphal entry, the final battle has already been won. Jesus still has to fight the final battle. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. It was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. And one of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Pilate said, "Well, would you like me to release the king of the Jews? For he realized now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy but at this point the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus and Pilate asked them well then what should I do with this man that you call king of the Jews and they shouted back crucify him why Pilate demanded what crime has he committed but the mob roared even louder crucify him crucify him And so to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him over the head with a reed stick, so they spit on him, and they dropped to their knees in mock worship. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and they put on his own clothes again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, a place of the skull, and they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. <laughs> Look at him now, they yelled. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself. Come down from that cross. And the leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saves others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe Him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed Him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. Wait. Wait. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there, and watching from a distance, they included Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, uh, and Joseph, and Salome. They'd been following Jesus, and they cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there too. This all happened on Friday the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, and evening as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Joseph was an honored member of the High Council, and he was he was waiting of the kingdom he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph that he could have the body. And Joseph brought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in the tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body had been laid. That's the final battle. And I guess I just want to start our time together today with a really simple statement. All of those things that we just read, it happened. It happened. This isn't a story, this happened. And more than any other gospel, I struggle to read Mark's account of Jesus' death. For some reason, more than any other gospel, this account comes to life for me. And I see it all happening in a different way than I do in Matthew or Luke or John. I see Him being beaten by men who know how to inflict maximum pain. I see Him being crucified by practiced hands that know how to hold the hammer. I see Jesus At the mercy of men who don't get squeamish when a spike pierces flesh. When I read the Gospel of Mark, I don't just believe that this happened. I see it happening to Jesus. And I don't know where you're at in your faith. Maybe you're here today and you don't know if you believe that. That's okay. You don't have to have a certain level of belief or theological understanding to be here. I'm just glad you're here and I want to invite you to come back but maybe you're here today and and we've been reading through mark chapter 15 and you've asked yourself this question that i've asked myself many times why did this have to happen why did this have to happen this is awful why did this have to happen why does the death or why does the defeat of sin require the death of jesus why does this have to happen and you know there's an easy answer for the question We just say, well, the wages of sin is death. And we go on our way. We get that. That's true. We know that when we sin, we are breaking a law of God and that there is punishment for breaking God's law. And in this case, the punishment happens to be death. That's true. But that's an answer that begs more questions than it gives answers. Here's why. Because when we reduce sin to indiscretion, it's easy to get confused by the severity of the punishment when we reduce sin to an indiscretion. It's easy to be confused by the severity of the punishment. Let me let me explain that a little bit. Uh, let's say I get a speeding ticket, which isn't going to happen, by the way. Uh, I frequently get accused of driving like a great grandfather with a great grandfather clock in the back seat. Okay, So like I don't speed. Uh, that's a different story. But I just here's what here's what happens. Okay. We don't have time to get too far off track, but here's what happens. In my defense, I get to thinking about stuff while I'm driving. I don't know if any of you do this. I get to thinking about stuff while I'm driving. And, and so I start wondering about how I'm going to transition to this next point in my sermon this coming Sunday. Or I start wondering what I messed up from last Sunday's sermon. Or, or start thinking about some um, point in church leadership or some direction to go in the church. Or, or why the English courts still wear white wigs. Right? And I start wondering about all these things, and all of a sudden, I'm driving 30 in a 55. And it drives Leah nuts. Okay? So I'm not going to get pulled over for speeding, but I might get pulled over for going 30 in a 55. That's a far more likely scenario. So let's go with that. Let's say that happens. I get pulled over. The officer knocks on the window. You know why I'm pulling you over today? Yeah, pretty good idea, sir. Always say, sir. That's a good start. Okay? Um, yeah, I know I was, I was, um, I was uh, just preaching this morning. Officer, and I uh, got a little distracted, and so he said, "Okay, well, I, I got to have to write you a ticket." I said, yeah, it's fair, I understand. And uh, he says, "Well, here you are going to have to appear in court on May fifth for your sentencing." I said, "What do you mean, sir? May fifth? Just I know how this works. You know, I get points taken off my license and I pay a fine. What do you mean I got to appear in court May fifth. Yes, sir. So I show up in court on May fifth, and the judge says, "Mr. Mendezabel, you're you're here today appearing for the crime of driving 30 and a 55." And I say, "Yes, Your Honor." That's always say, "Yes, Your Honor." Okay, "Yes, Your Honor." And the judge looks at me and says, "You are hereby sentenced to death." Anybody okay with that? I'm not looking at Hamer, by the way. He's probably got his hand up. "Yeah, perfectly fine with that." But is anybody okay with that? Seems like it's disproportionate doesn't it it's a small infraction with a big penalty and so a lot of us are going wait a minute you're telling me that when I lie I get the death penalty I don't understand I just don't understand the penalty seems disproportionate to the crime when we reduce sin to indiscretion it's easy to be confused by the severity of the punishment so what is sin What is sin? Shane Wood, uh, he he recently wrote a book called Between Two Trees. It's a fantastic book. And here's how he describes sin. He says, sin is a willful union with something or someone other than God. Sin is a willful union with something or someone other than God. We are people who have been created in the image of God of God Genesis 1:26 tells us that it says let us this is God talking he says let us make human beings in our image to be like us when we sin we don't just move from innocent to guilty we become something different instead of being made in the image of God we are now being transformed into the image of sin See the difference there? We have been created in the image of God, but sin causes us to begin to be transformed, not more into the image of God, but more into the image of sin. And When we're united with sin. It's not just a choice to commit sin. It's a choice to commit to sin. A choice to commit to Sin. Yes, sin is breaking a law of God, but it's much more than that. When we sin, it is our marriage ceremony with sin. It's our marriage ceremony with sin. It's our union with sin. So to whatever it is, whatever you struggle with, all of the different things, I don't know, we'll just name a few, lust or pride or idolatry or, or greed, Whatever, whatever it is, when we sin, we are saying these words. Before God and man, I promise to love you forever, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, you will be the one I think of. For richer or poorer, I will seek you in new and greater ways, to love and to cherish my sin until death do us part. It's a little bit different way of thinking about sin, isn't it? Now, I know that not all of you in here are married, but uh, hopefully this doesn't come as a surprise to you. When you're married to somebody, that person changes you. Is that a fair statement? If you have any pushback, just go ahead and be quiet about it. (laughs) But when you're married to somebody, that person changes you. Uh, I'm pretty much an expert on marriage. Leah and I have been married for almost six years now, so I pretty well got all figured out. But... uh, Leah has already begun to change me in our marriage. Let me give you an example. I am a tidier person now than I used to be, right? Six years ago, I never would have said the phrase, be tidy. What does that even mean? What is that word? But now I like for things to have a home. I like for the things that have a home to be in their home. It, It causes me to be able to relax at the end of an evening for all of the things to be in their home. And I can sit down on the couch and say, ah. I am relaxed. That is not a thought that would have crossed my mind six years ago. Leah has begun to change me. And you know what? I'm changing Leah too. She's learned that sometimes I drive 30 in a 55. Sometimes she's okay with that. Sometimes she's not. Here's another example. Leah has learned that the appropriate way to cook a steak is medium rare. That is when it is done. That is when it is right. That is when it is ready to serve. I've begun to change her. We came into our marriage with different preferences and opinions and a different ability to overlook things, but since then, we have been intertwined and our preferences have become each other's preferences and we've gotten comfortable with different things. It's pretty innocent. It's pretty silly, right? When we are united with sin, the changes are not so innocent. When we become united with sin, we grow more comfortable with evil than we do purity. When we become united with sin, we grow more comfortable with evil than we do purity. And the best way to illustrate this is the account of Barabbas. The account of Barabbas, we just read it. Now, it's the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release a prisoner. Anyone the people requested. And one of the people, one of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. And the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you the king of the Jews? But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked, well, what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him who do you want me to release the murderer what do you want me to do with jesus murder him So when we become one flesh with sin we grow more comfortable with evil than purity the religious leaders saw jesus as a threat to their power so they plotted to have him killed why was he a threat to their power because he was who he said he was because He was pure and holy. He was the Son of God because He was uncorrupted and uncorruptible and they were deeply troubled by that. They were more comfortable with evil than they were Jesus' purity, so they sought to have Him killed. Our transformation into the image of sin is not an innocent thing. And ultimately what it does is it leads us closer to death. What do the marriage vows say? Until death do us part. Make no mistake about it. That is sin's intention for you. For you to die separated from God because of sin. Until death do us part. And so as I stand up here today on Palm Sunday, I have this inescapable thought in my mind and it's this. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. We need one who will deliver us from our union with sin. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who got what. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And a sign announced the charge against him. It read this. The king of the Jews. Sin's desire is to lead everyone to death. Sin's desire is to lead everyone to death, but very simply, Jesus said, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to feel this pain. I don't want you to die, so I will. So I will. How does this help us? How does this help us? We have all heard that Jesus died. How does this help us end our union with sin? go back to the first question we ask. Why does the defeat of sin require the death of Jesus? When we sinned, we made a commitment. We said, until death do us part. God takes covenants seriously. The only way to end that union is in death. The problem is, we end our union with sin we find ourselves dead we find ourselves dead and apart from God because of the thing that separated us from God so Jesus lived and died so that we might experience a different type of death not not the normal death that we think of on a regular basis no instead a death that leads to life Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it in the book of Romans. He says, You have forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death. For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Sin's plan is simple. It wants to ensure that our lives end in death, separate from God. Jesus offers an opportunity to participate in his death. Jesus offers an opportunity to participate in his death. Here's why that's so significant. Uh, My grandpa passed away. Worship team, you guys can come on up if you want. My grandpa passed away the summer before my freshman year in high school. He's a wonderful man. I love him dearly. And while I don't miss him constantly, I don't think about him at all hours of every day, there are some things, some uh, stimuli that that immediately bring me back to my grandparents' house. Whenever I go over to one of your homes and you have a wood-burning stove and it's on, I am not at your house anymore. I am in my grandparents' house. I can smell that, right? Whenever, uh, whenever I hear a chainsaw, I am reminded of cutting firewood and stacking firewood in my grandpa's backyard. There are so many things that very quickly bring me back to his house, and he is a wonderful man. I loved him dearly. I respected him dearly, and there are so many things about his life that I would want to duplicate in my own, but here's the thing. If somebody offered me the opportunity to participate in his death, I would decline. I love my grandpa, but I would decline because when he died, he stayed dead. I've chosen to participate in the death of Jesus Christ because even though he died, I know that he is alive. And it's not someone else who invites me to participate in the death of Jesus. But Jesus Himself invites us to die to ourselves. He invites us to die to our sins. He invites us to be baptized and experience a death to our sin. And just as surely as Jesus raised from the dead, so we too will be raised to a new life where we are united with God and freed from our union to sin. Today I want to invite you to participate in the death that leads to real life. So If you've never been baptized and, and you want to know more about baptism, why don't you find me after service? I'd, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation about that. Or, or maybe you're here today and you think you need to be baptized. I'd love for that to happen. We're going to stand and sing here in just a second, and you should come forward and be baptized. But I do have one last thought. On this day, this Palm Sunday, when we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus, let us remember there is a new ruler. His name is Jesus, and His kingdom will endure forever. He rules with justice and despises evil. He hears the cries of His people who have been deceived, and He has compassion. There is a new ruler, and the only thing left to say is, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that even though your triumphal entry surely meant your death, you did it because it meant our life. We praise you for that. We consider now that you died for our sake. and We praise you. We praise you that you are not dead that you rose to life and offer us new life. God, we praise you for loving us so much that you were willing to send your son for us. And God, we pray that you would give us the courage to live our lives for others, for your sake. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.